Hello there and welcome to the first episode of Radio Olon, the podcast where I talk about the things I like the most, games, anime, shows and so on. In this month's episode, in January 2021, I will make an introduction of who I am and how I came to writing and critique and why I think the two are very closely linked together in one specific aspect. But first, I want to make a short explanation on how I plan to structure this podcast. First, I will respond to questions or comments I have received after the last episode, which should be very short in the next few episodes. Then, I plan to cover at least one main topic in detail, which will be either a video game or franchise, movie series, an anime or something similar. After that, I plan to have an optional side topic or more, which I will cover in less detail in words. I also plan to start streaming, but right now I lack the internet connection and the know-how to do so. This might be happening in March. I plan to start with a special version of Sekiro, but right now I do not want to say much more. I'm also working on my first five novels or so for around six years by now. But my progress is, well, let's call it unoptimized. Which leads me to the reason I'm starting with this podcast. Because my original plan was to finish one of these books first and then follow with all the other internet stuff I wanted to do. However, since writing isn't just hard, but also takes an enormous amount of time, I lost my patience and said, fuck it, I'll start with this first. Since streaming isn't an option either at the moment and I lack the competence to edit videos, I decided to start with a podcast. I like to discuss media things in an analytical way with my friends almost on a daily basis and thought, well, why not record it? In this episode, I will first explain how my journey as an uprising critic and writer started, which channels helped me and also which one of those stopped to do so, and then conclude this episode with a short assessment of the movie Arrival from Denis Villeneuve. I generally do not plan to cover movies in that much detail unless there is something interesting to say about them. Since this first main topic is only an introduction to my podcast and uh, if you are only interested in the analysis for the pieces of art, you may skip to episode 2 because in this introductory episode I will talk about critique and channels that deal with it. Of course, it makes more sense to know the full context, but I wanted to say that first. But before I will go further into those channels, let me tell you a small story from not so long ago about a very fascinating moment I had with a video about a very controversial game. There are many critics and YouTubers who will either talk in long videos or short essays about their opinions about movies, games and TV shows. They talk about how it made them feel and then smash a number out of 10 at the end and expect you to believe all they said. While I do not think any of this is inherently bad, there comes a time in all forms of media when you are so utterly bewildered by what you see or hear that you simply can't but laugh. It was not so long ago that I saw a video from Luke Stevens, who makes long video essays, occasionally calls them critiques, and who made a five hour long video about The Last of Us 2. 
And while, yet again, there is nothing wrong with long-term video essays, I am pretty sure not to be the only one who expects some arguments in either favor of the game or against it, right? Wrong. For about four and a half hours straight, Luke simply comments on the footage playing in the background. It's nothing more than a cut let's play that he commented on afterwards. And still, I have no issue with this. If he wants to do this kind of video, it's totally fine. It just begs the question if the length is absolutely necessary. No, my problem with this video comes in context with the last 20 to 30 minutes. Out of the blue suddenly he claims the game to be a timeless masterpiece and the best video game he ever played. And all I thought was, what the actual fuck? <laughs> Where did that come from? Nothing in the four hours before and no arguments were given that would have led me to come to that conclusion. And so overwhelmed with the situation and not knowing what to think about it, I just burst out laughing not knowing why. At least back then. I do not wish to give my opinion of the game yet and I only brought this video up because I always thought the longer the analysis, the more in-depth and the better. But this made me think otherwise. Just because a video is long doesn't make it good, and vice versa. Just because a video is short doesn't mean it's bad. But enough of Luke, let me tell you now the story of how I came to learn about criticism and writing. It all started, like with most people who try to create stories, with little fanfictions of my favorite series that changed the characters, setting and plot through time and eventually turned into their own thing. It was then when I had all the cool moments with my characters and all the epic payoffs that I discovered that they simply won't work as I thought they would. I watched movies and shows with similar payoffs and asked myself why it worked there but not in my story. The answer however was very simple. Those stories were good and mine was bad. I had no experience, no understanding of what good writing is and how to pull it off in practice. Therefore, I started to do what all people do when they have questions they need an answer for. I googled literally how to write good stories. I found different online schools for writing and gurus, but all of that was rather loose and uninteresting. So I turned towards YouTube to search for writing tutorials. I surfed through different channels, but eventually I got stuck on two channels in particular, The Closer Look and Just Ride. The latter one will be covered a bit more later in this episode. The videos on those channels were focused on specific aspects of writing, like the nature of a plot twist, what makes a good villain, or how to make your audience cry. And I soaked those videos in like a black hole, absorbing a star until well, until they eventually stopped being made. Which leads me to the first main topic, critique and writing, or Moller versus Just Write. There is an ongoing debate in the depths of the web about subjective and objective criticism in art. But before I will go further into this debate, it might be a good idea to talk about how objectivity and subjectivity are defined. If you talk about subjectivity and objectivity, it is essential to make clear which definition you are using. 
if you talk about objectivity in a philosophic sense, it is considerably more difficult to make definitive statements than if you were using the literary definitions. Since I focus on discussing art and not philosophy simply because I'm way too much of a rookie in philosophy, I will go with the literary definitions from my dictionary used for my English studies. It's the Dictionary of Contemporary English in, in its sixth edition and it defines as follows. Subjective as a statement, report, attitude, etc. that is influenced by a personal opinion and can therefore be unfair. Objective as based on facts or making a decision that is based on facts rather than your feelings or beliefs. If you consider something objectively, you try to think about the facts and not be influenced by your own feelings or opinions. The word good is defined as something of high standard or quality. Objectively good means thereby something of high quality unbiased by one's opinion or feelings. And that's it. Those words clearly defined and there's no further reason to discuss those definitions for an hour. There is a video just right released recently that is called Why Mulan Mattered as a response towards the controversy surrounding the live-action adaptation of the Disney classic Mulan. You may want to pause right now and watch the video yourself, but if you don't want to then I will try to paraphrase the main points of this video in hopefully not too many words. He starts with the point that the new movie's characters fail to make him care about them and specifically the relationship between Mulan and her father is of major importance to him as a binding factor of the investment towards the characters. It is essential for him for this to work because otherwise the viewer won't feel any kind of emotional payoff for the characters. He also complains about the chi and how it is implemented and never really explained to a sufficient degree. It would be interesting to hear now how it, this could have been made to work, but this seems to be not important at the moment. He takes this as a reason New v Version's relationship doesn't work because it focuses on Mulan's father as an exposition machine instead of building the emotional relationship between the two. The important part is now to explain how exactly the one thing succeeds while the other doesn't. He then shows two similar scenes from both films between Mulan and her father. While in the original he tries to bring her up after her failed marriage training showing the connection between the two, the remake sacrifices that part to make her father put Mulan into a gender role because after all this movie is about women empowerment and we need to show the terrible situation in which Mulan is set. Just Right concludes that thereby the most important emotional anchor of Milan is turned into an antagonistic force. So far I would agree with this assessment. His next point is about action and reaction continuously repeated being the essence of a story. A character engages with a problem and takes an action as re reaction towards it. And this is what Just Right sees as stories. I do fundamentally disagree with this, but let's hear now how he wants to explain this further. The first scene is thereby an action that leads to a reaction in the next scene and so on. 
he basically uses the words action and reaction to explain how the internal logic of a plot works. But I would say there are at least two more things that make up a story, not just the plot. For the remake he then says that the scenes are not directly corresponding to each other, that action follows on action, then reaction follows on reaction. First of all, it is not an immediate consequence that an action following in on action is inherently bad. He needed to explain why this is an issue and he also hasn't proven that his action-reaction theory is the only way a plot can be written. Not that I would completely disagree, but those are some hard statements being made without a strong argument backing them up. He simply proclaims them as definitive truth. He stumbles upon the word consequence for a second, and that would be the exact point to state why his action-reaction thing is important, but sadly he doesn't make this argument. You see, an action has a reaction as consequence, and this is how a plot creates the illusion of being real. Because in the real world, actions do have consequences. You see, I am not saying that he is just wrong, I am simply stating that he is sloppy in his argumentation, which is quite a problem when talking about the craft of using words to construct a fictional story. For him, the relationship is of such importance because he sees the crafting of comprehensive relationships between characters as the most decisive factor of how well a story works and it defines if a movie succeeds or fails. Yet again, a very definitive statement that needs some arguments to back up. However, he prefers to move on onto the chi and its effects on the story for now. The next thesis he makes is of how the chi changes the payoffs from the original by failing to make the right setup for them and radically alters the message of the film. That is a lot of stuff to explain within the next 12 minutes, but go for it, Justin. He defines Mulan's characteristics as her cleverness and her craftiness and gives a few very good examples where Mulan shows those traits. Good visual storytelling and something that should have been a little bit more in the focus. But he quickly moves on to talk about the fan, which he describes as a symbol of femininity and that when at the end she disarms the antagonist with it, it unites all themes about gender expectations by letting her win in a man's world as a symbol of strength. Be careful with such statements. That's close to being a classic case of postmodernist overinterpretation. The moment shows her traits, as Justin has pointed out, and it gives minor payoffs to the oppressive aspects she has been exposed to throughout the movie. This scene shows indeed the theme of the movie. It's the climax it has to, but try to remain within the realm of the film at hand. It is fine, you're not wrong, but with statements that are too focused on interpretation limited to your own mind, you are in danger to limit yourself to look at the film only on a surface level. Especially as a writing channel, you should be focused to go deeper than that. First of all, Mulan solves those problems because she is clever and witty, not because she is a woman. He then explains how the remake fails at all of this because Mulan is using her chi to defeat all of her enemies through brute force. But instead of going the obvious route to explain that their human character solving problems through using their brain is more relatable and investing than a godlike one-man army slicing and dicing her way through any opposition, 
he simply says it is more interesting, which I don't think is entirely right because this really depends on the setting and context. So even though I can see what he might be up to, he uses the wrong words to phrase it. If you haven't realized it yet, by the way, Mulan is a Mary Sue and just right tries to prevent explicitly saying it. That is the main issue why no payoff revolving Mulan in this film can't possibly work. Why? Because nobody can empathize with a godlike being that solves every problem through brute force, is never opposed with any real threat and is liked by everyone even when in the original this was perfectly done. No payoff in this movie can possibly work because the character is always disconnected to the viewer and if you remember, he already said that the characters and the empathy for them is the most important part of every story. And this is the argument that proves why that point doesn't work in the remake and why not a single payoff in the remake can work. And for some reason, Just Right doesn't want to admit it even though it's an ongoing problem infecting many blockbusters with female leads. He moves now through the several themes and how their execution is inferior to the original, but the most important part, as he proclaims, he simply passes over. And now he moves on to the reason why he wanted to make this video. Remember when a few lines before I said it's going to be difficult to explain how the setups and payoffs in the remake don't work within the remaining 12 minutes? Well, doesn't matter because for the remaining 6 minutes he will talk now about another subject. I would say that the payoff part wasn't entirely convincing to me, but let's hear what he sees as the most important part of this video. Again. He makes an overly long fish-out-of-water comparison that Mulan is thrown into a completely new setting and has to learn to adapt to her surroundings in order to not screw up her cover. She comes from an environment that expects her to behave in an appropriate manner to a gender, to a place with only men and has no clue how to behave. He now makes a jump and says, this is the reason to why this movie resonated with him that much because he projected his sexuality towards that and states now that there is a trans narrative for this movie, which I am 100% sure was the intent of the writers back then. He thinks that Mulan can be read through a bisexual lens and I honestly couldn't care less, but if the movie resonates with you that much through that lens, then well, that's nice for you. But I think this is a bit of a stretch and now I have to bring up the term overinterpretation again. Making a trans comparison with Mulan is interesting but calling Shang bisexual is almost a lie as he clearly falls in love at the end after he finds out she is a woman. Even if this is the case in the original poem, in the animated adaptation it is not. Remember what I said about distancing too much from the story. There is nothing of evidence for that. And those things are postmodernist overinterpretation in the best way possible. While that was debatable with a fan, now we have a reason to why I wanted to talk about this video in this podcast. There is an issue I have with videos like this on Just Rights channel. What I covered of this video basically stands for the type of video he focuses on doing. Besides smaller but underdeveloped statements about writing in media, 
He talks about movies and how he responded to them based on his lens defined in the reader response theory. If you don't know what that is and you, like me, didn't know after watching his video on it three times and finally ended up googling it, let me explain in one sentence. The reader response theory, and I want to emphasize on the word response, says that all humans have different ways to look at art based on their personal bias and experiences in a form of subjective lens, how Justin says. If you ask yourself now what exactly the way of how you as a reader, not as a writer, responding to art has to do with the process of writing, then you're asking the right question because it hasn't. The way how you in your subjective bias respond to art has nothing to do with the piece of art at hand, but with you and only you. And make no mistake, I can understand why he has this interpretation, but it is nothing more than that. It belongs into the realm of literary analysis of universities and schools, where people discuss all the beautiful forms of isms the writers themselves almost certainly don't give as many shits about. And even if they do, they most likely don't want you to only focus on them and ignore all the great work they have put into their character plot and world building. Sure, those sections are usually the reason you write a story, but knowing how somebody feels won't help you to write your own isms into a physical piece of art. And that is my criticism towards Just Write. Those videos are totally fine or would be so if his channel would be focused on literary analysis and the reason why this is a problem is that the approach he has to his channel is to make videos that help uprising writers like me to learn the skills needed to craft their ideas into a well-written story. And in his beginnings he was doing exactly that. So making videos that focus on art analysis but wanting those videos to be about the craft of writing makes just right, in my view, simply a hypocrite. As I said, there is nothing wrong with those videos but they are just not what he thinks they are. And if he made two channels, one about writing who is called Just Write and a second where he uploads those lens videos about his opinion, which he calls Just Talk or so, I would stop complaining. The problem is, if you click on his video about Mulan and know he wants to cover writing, you expect him to talk about Mulan's writing. And there's a lot of great writing in that animated classic. But no, he talks about how his bisexuality resonated with Mulan, hiding herself as a man, and while that is all great, I'd ask myself, the viewers and him, how exactly I'm going to write better stories from that. If you are like me, you probably can't stand to see the 10 millionth postmodernist pseudo-intellectual essay filled with over-interpretation when trying to learn about writing and how to improve your skill in it, and this is close to being false advertisement from Just Right. What annoys me the most is that if you try to do something like that in a literary essay in university, you're almost certainly going to fail. 99% of YouTube essays think what they do is deep philosophical and what literary scholars and lectors in universities do. If I dare to make such an assumption like Just Right with Mulan and Shang without being able to prove any of it, because there's nothing that would possibly indicate that, my lector would give me a weird look, let me write the whole thing again and I would simply fail it. I study English literature and what I learned about subjective art analysis differs heavily from what people like Just Right want to sell you a steep critique. And the list of others who are far worse than him is rather long.
An essay is nothing more than a longer close reading. You research yourself an aspect you want to analyze or what you think the story is about and then you search for quotes and, and phrases that can prove your hypothesis within the text and you don't make any assumptions of things that are not to be found in the text. That's why you call it close reading. Because if you just make some things up, you can prove. Most lectors see this as lazy. Yes, people who overinterpret media without being able to prove their thesis statements would be considered as lazy. And the fact that he even mentions to have studied English literature makes this all the more hypocritical. He should know it better, but still believes to have found the right way to look at art that happens entirely in his own head and not on the work itself. He should know that if you don't just make a good close reading, but a good essay, then you should take potential counter-arguments into account, as well as more text passages that can either prove or disprove your hypothesis, and then you weigh them up against each other to see if your reading has substance. But make no mistake, just right is by far not the worst example of this, but he's more and more turning into this generic, superficial, pompous video essayist, and while others are already lost, there are still good tendencies in some of his videos. It is because of all of those reasons that I slowly lost all of my interest for Just Right, but I was still convinced that he might do good videos again and that could help me become a better writer, until I saw a very special debate. Within this debate, two YouTubers called Marlo and Wolf were arguing with Just Right about how he changed from his earlier videos, like The Hobbit Autopsies, where he analyzed how the movies were shot and written. To this form of videos he now prioritizes, and I also want to look at why I think it was at least one step backwards for his video's overall quality. The overall subject of this debate is the plot's quality of The Last Jedi, but since I haven't seen the movie and quit Star Wars already after The Force Awakens and have absolutely no intention to watch anything other related to this franchise, which for me is dead now. I don't think I can make any useful statements about those parts of the debate. He states to have evolved as a critic, which I won't comment on any further, and that he's more interested in the underlying themes instead of the plot, which I already mentioned is very lazy, but all right. It spares time and people think you're smart, so why not? Anyway, the problem here lies within the simple error that it's the plot combined with the characters that give those isms their power and impact. And if your structure is poorly crafted, the important message you want to bring across is lost. But working such stuff out is a lot of work and whoever would once put in effort into this work. I think you can guess what I think of this stand. As I mentioned before, he uses his knowledge about subjective criticism from his literature studies that focus on interpretation and sell it as writing advice, which is seldom infallible because after all, even if you have a massive amount of proof to support your interpretation, unless you could ask the author directly, you can never be sure if you really got what the story was really about. However, this is completely irrelevant because a potential writer always has his isms and what his story is about, so why would they need any more of them? No, a writer needs structural advice. Just Wright's approach of what he wants to be directly contradicts what he actually does, and that's the problem.
However, even as completely subjective analysis, his videos are very poor in their argumentation. He always lacks sufficient proof to support his partially ridiculous statements and overinterprets to an insufferable degree. He too has to understand that stating your analysis to be subjective does not protect you from criticism and giving a sufficient amount of proof for your interpretations, which he won't because it means textual work and also can't because there's nothing he could take as evidence for some of his more crazy assumptions. However, there's a far more interesting point I want to cover that's stuck with me for quite a while. And I already hinted that this is about the best videos on Just Right's channel. There is one moment where he talks about his perspective of how he views critique in context of his Hobbit videos, which I would consider some of the best videos to learn about writing, unlike his more recent work. Just Wright said that he thinks he destroyed, in quotes, happiness for people watching the Hobbit movies and wants to focus more on the positive in writing while he completely forgets that he has done this by showing the great aspects of The Lord of the Rings. He actively increased the happiness for people watching The Lord of the Rings by showing how well written that movie is. And every time I see the stairway scene in Casa Doom, I don't just think it's a good entertaining scene. I think it's a great scene because of the things he pointed out. So isn't it kind of hypocritical to only listen to a small irrelevant minority who don't want to see that the Hobbit movies are not as good as they thought they are and completely ignore the majority of people who are learning from your videos and watch them because they want to? And isn't it very sad that you ignore the very people you're making your videos for but let yourself being influenced by the very minority you should educate? There is another far bigger problem to why you should never listen to loud minorities who want to remain in their rainbow dream world. The truth hurts on a short time, and that is what happened here. Those people did not want to see the reality that those movies simply aren't good after you showed them the truth. But on the long term, they will eventually see and accept it, and will have learned something in the process. If you, however, behave as if nothing bad is happening and actively try not to say the truth out of fear to hurt the little feelings of people, aren't you damaging those people and the work itself on the long term? And aren't you reducing the potential happiness of people by preventing them to see the good and the bad? If you say that the Hobbit sucks because of reasons A, B and C, People are getting sad because of that, but eventually accept the truth and can consciously enjoy it while being aware that it's bad. Don't you think this is much better than keeping those creamers in the wonderful dream world of lies? Because I think the latter one is almost careless if you have something to say people could learn from, but you don't because you're afraid of hurting feelings. And what does it say about your trust in your own work if you break apart because of that? I mean, did you expect everyone would say, oh, you're correct, when seeing how hyped that thing was? I mean, this is the internet and it's filled with stupid people and those are always louder than the majority. I am convinced you do people a better service by speaking out hard truths that might be hurtful for a short period, but ultimately make them smarter instead of actively lying to them. Because I think that is far more damaging. In this regard, 
I would heavily criticize your mindset about this and would like you to rethink your position. You are making those videos for uprising writers who should know the truth about their craft and not for a screaming minority that doesn't want its echo chamber bubble being destroyed. If you want to go further, then you could even say that in order to establish what is good, you need to establish what is bad. There can't be light without dark. There is no good without evil. And only by pointing out the bad you can clearly see the good. His approach of focusing on the good but consciously not talking about the bad is straight up contradictive. In response to this debate, he made a video stating that he cannot judge art objectively, which I want to cover next. Since I already went over a Just Right video in this podcast and I rather don't want to cover them too much, I will try to only cover his statements that he derived from Kant's text to support his position to point out some problems there. First of all, Just Right uses the words objective and subjective in a context from Kant, who was a philosopher and not a literary person. Therefore, we are now, just as Theo said, in the realm of philosophic terms, which are not just inappropriate when talking about literature, but also completely different from scratch. Objective in philosophy means absent of human interference, which of course is a term that stands in contrast to culture and therefore literature, which is very useful for just right. However, why would you use debatable definitions from a different subject? Since philosophers always like to debate, you should never just upright take anything for granted without questioning it especially when there are set and easy definitions within your subject. This creates serious issues in his argumentation for he already started with the wrong words. Not a great start for his video. Now he makes the statement erupting from the critique of judgment, where he quotes, Taste is inherently subjective. He then proceeds to split this up into three departments, the agreeable, the beautiful, and the good. The agreeable is a simple judgment of desire. If you are hungry, you desire something that sates you. The good is something that appeals to our desire to want things, and when they fulfill our desire of those, we call them good. The beautiful is now what is important for Justin's argumentation. It is free from needs or function of any kind, an unbiased judgment, as he calls it. The beautiful is now something that cannot be compared on any sort of degree. We cannot argue about what we consider to be beautiful. If Kant really said that nothing through the definition of beautiful can be judged on objective standards, is something I cannot prove since Just Right decided to not give the essential quotes for this assessment and simply wants us to believe everything he says to be true. He simply takes this part of Kant's entire book, gives no insight to the context, and doesn't even give references to check them. Since there is an entire debate about transcendental ideas and metaphysics surrounding all of this, it is quite important to know how Kant meant all of this. And thus, I have my problems of how Just Right approaches this entire topic. I don't want to cover all that Just Right says because there is an EFAP episode of number 47 about this video as well, where one of the guests 
dismantles just right statements and the result is that just right simply takes phrases from Kant, takes them out of context in order to support his own agenda that beautiful or aesthetic things cannot be judged on objective standards. Kant talks about a metaphysical concept on how humans perceive beauty. He does not explicitly talk about art or media and there is the big issue. Just because you see something as good doesn't mean it is instantly beautiful as well. I can completely understand why people love The Godfather and I think it is a well-crafted movie. But I don't feel anything while watching it and I also can't feel empathy for any of the characters yet I think the way of how this movie is written and crafted makes it fully understandable for me why people could potentially like it. You shouldn't forget we are still talking about a craft, an abstract one, but nonetheless a craft. Do you think it is impossible to judge if a music instrument is well or poorly crafted, or if a sculpture is of poor quality, or if a football shoe is well crafted or not? This entire instance is overly long and complicated because in the end all he wants to say is that what we consider to be beautiful can't be argued by other people and he uses Kant's theory as in quotation marks proof for this which I will try to counter in the next section because even if that is exactly what Kant said and meant let's just say there can't be universal standards for beauty even though that is almost irrelevant for the aspect of writing and critique let's take this position for granted and look if a few examples can't be found that could potentially challenge that position or at least show some flaws in it. There are filters for Instagram etc. that reshape your face in a way to make it look objectively appealing based on universal standards that can be reproduced by a set concept. So even beauty has a set number of objective qualities defining it. If you doubt this is the case, then think of people in your circle of friends and known people. Now think of people who were a bit more robust and lost some weight. If you think just about their faces, complexion and definition, would you say they looked more attractive after they lost weight or before? Another example, now especially for men. Compare men you've known for a long time and they always had a more round-shaped face. Now you suddenly see them again and they got a defined jawline. Would you say they looked more attractive before or after? I bet most women would definitely say after. I have to make clear that there is no way I could possibly prove such things for sure. Either because it's simply impossible or as of now we lack the technology to do so. I just want to point out that even the most presumably subjective things cannot be seen as such with absolute certainty and I would argue that Kant's position that aesthetics cannot be judged objectively is not entirely infallible. And with that I want to conclude the section about just right. I am not saying that subjectivity in media is entirely irrelevant or inferior. I would simply argue it is 50-50. A story in its biggest scale is one big setup that consists of many smaller setups and payoffs and one big payoff basically the meaning of the whole story. The setup alone is worthless if there is no meaning or payoff to give it power. 
Game of Thrones Season 5 up to 8 are the best examples as the phenomenal setup for of the first four seasons lost its value due to the terrible payoffs. A show which I watched annually due to their great build-ups is of no interest anymore for me. I guess this is how fans of Lost must have felt. Vice versa, a payoff without this right setup is worthless since the ism is forced and unnaturally or undeserved. Just having a philosophic idea, theme or trope without any consistent representation in how that idea inherently works is exactly as bad as writing a character inconsistently. This means that not just characters, plot and world building, which I would argue are part of all forms of storytelling, need to be written logically, but also themes, topics, ideas, and all the other aspects of isms need to be represented consistently. If your goal in a script is to write about the idea of human sacrifice, but in the end of the movie Armageddon Bruce Willis gets chained to the comet remaining there unwillingly and the bomb just went off, without him pulling the trigger you would have objectively missed the theme of self-sacrifice that was your goal to begin with. Not just plot progression is bound to internal logic, but also underlying subtle tropes and concepts. The story is meant as a vehicle to transport something, which I refer to as a tenor or the core of a story. If you don't know what a tenor is, then allow me to explain. Vehicle and tenor are two terms used in the literary analysis to describe a metaphor. The vehicle is the tool or the mount that drives you to your destination or goal. The vehicle hereby is used as imagery to describe the tenor. A good example would be a quote from Bilbo Baggins from The Lord of the Rings, where he described himself feeling like butter scraped over too much bread. He wants to say that he feels exhausted and uses the image of the butter on the bread to describe this concept. In this analogy, the butter scraped on the bread is the vehicle used to give an image of the disposition of feeling exhausted. The latter one being the goal or the tenor, the first one being the tool or image used to describe this goal or the tenor. There is a potential discussion to be held about the whole concept of metaphors representing the world itself through the words of Hegel, but at the moment let's just stay with the metaphor as an imagery of a feeling. Feelings are subjective while the concept of the vehicle is not. If you say for example you feel exhausted like a bright star shining through the night sky, that might be an image but one would not make an analogy between a shining star and feeling exhausted. The vehicle used to shape a picture of the feeling of exhaustion might indeed create a picture, but is poorly chosen to visualize the desired feeling. The metaphor is thereby poorly chosen to visualize a subjective sensation. If we now put this whole concept on the aspect of writing, the argument can be made that these subjective parts of art, which one might call themes, tropes, and philosophical or psychological ideas, are indeed following logical concepts of internal consistency. And if executed poorly, they won't fulfill their whole potential. Just using a theme and randomly throwing it into your script and say, hey, look, look at it. It's about feminism. 
might be indeed true. Yet if you fail to nail the concept of feminism in your character or plot, you have made an objectively poor representation of a subjective theme. Congratulations, JJ. Despite, however, the fact that I do appreciate the discussion about objective media analysis brought up by Morlo and his two furry sidekicks, at least for the most part, as well as the impressive patience and forgiveness they have in response to people's horrendous criticism towards them, which sometimes is utmost insulting and often ends in strawman arguments. There was at least one moment where I saw that pure objective analysis was heavily staggering when confronted with a movie that had a fourth dimension. At least, that is what I would describe it as. It has been only a couple of weeks when I was watching a long-anticipated episode in the EFAB podcast that has been hyped up by the hosts for quite some time. For the host, this seemed to have been the most infamous episode until then because never before has the chat been so contradictive in its opinion with Marlow, Ragus and Wolf and itself as in this debate. I don't want to retell the entirety of the debate for the movie Arrival, and will mostly talk about how I went towards the debate and which expectations I had, but most importantly, what I've learned and why until now. This is the episode I consider to be the most important ones of EFAP to learn about media criticism and maybe even writing. Topic 2. Arrival, Determinism and why the movie is not retarded. Based on the title I've chosen for this section, you can guess that I will use an ism to explain. Well, I think the movie is not bad, but first, let's talk about the essence of isms, when they are important to be pointed out and when not. A movie like Terminator 2 is a well-written and mostly entertaining movie. Are there any themes within the movie? Of course. There are humanist tendencies between Sean Connor and Arnold, but those aren't necessary to make a critique or sufficient understanding of the movie. It's a light-themed work. Think of it like stars and solar systems. A light-themed movie has a smaller star that has a smaller gravitational impact on the system, while a bigger star has a heavy impact on its system. This is equal to a heavy-themed work. As you might have guessed, I think Arrival is such a heavy-themed film, where the underlying ism has a massive impact on the objective structure of the writing, such as characters, plot and world. And I do think that it is almost impossible to find a sufficient understanding and make a critique of such a film only through an objective analysis. I don't intend to make in-depth critiques about movies in general, and I only talk about this because the arrival debate made me aware of this issue. Let me try to explain. In its most basic form, the story of Arrival is written around the idea of a set story that already exists in just one continuity. That means no free will, no decision, every thought and everything that happened, happens and will happen, would be laid out for someone who could see time as a sort of line. This simply means that all our actions are predetermined and even though most philosophers are not entirely sure about it, but most likely an idea of a predetermined existence of the world contradicts with the idea of free will. I can see why this is the idea chosen for this story, 
There are many time gems within the movie where Amy Adams is remembering the future as the lang language of the heptapodes, the aliens, and fucks up with her brain to a degree where just like them, she can perceive the future and the past in the present. This is only possible if your world building is based on the idea of a predetermined timeline. That means only then can you make your characters look into different states of time without the danger of creating a paradox. The idea of determinism is one of many constructs that can neither be proven nor disproven definitively. Therefore, this is an interesting concept to deal with. This means that no character decides anything and all our thoughts and actions are set, especially if right now, while listening to this podcast, you ask the question if this could be the case. The logical question would be to ask if everything is determined, why just not do anything and just sit here and wait? And that's exactly the point. Who told you that this moment of you asking this question and waiting for the world to continue is not part of this one storyline as well. Time is moving in one direction, into the future. And if the start of the fictional history through the existence of the dimension of time is the beginning, then the ending of time's existence will also be the end of this one timeline. The development of the three dimensions is thereby bound to move proportionally with the flow of time. If you do not know that you're dealing with this, then yes, you will come to the conclusion that the plot makes no sense because most of us believe into the existence of free will. Just as with determinism, it too can't be proven nor unproven with free will. So we can never be sure if your thoughts are really yours or if a form of higher existence planted them in your head to give you the illusion of your own free will. If you want to understand this flick, you have to consider the following two premises simply as given. First, free will does not exist because all of our thoughts and actions are predetermined. Second, the world is like a line moving from A to B and we can look into it, but due to the first premise cannot interfere, as the future is already defined by our future predetermined actions. We can look at it, but we cannot change it. In our real world, we cannot say if those two premises are or aren't. But for this movie's plot to work, you have to accept them because this is mandatory for the time thing to work. Most people make the wrong conclusion of taking their free will as granted, but as I just said, that's not the case. Compared to a predetermined world, the idea of free will sounds better for sure and less scary. But for now, let's just accept those two premises because the author already stated that his intent was to write a story that is already set or in other words predetermined. There can be no free will in such a story. If he was aware of what he did is irrelevant since this kind of story can only work with this disposition. While humans live their lives unaware of a bigger plan which in a predetermined world exists, the heptapodes are aware of this plan and basically fulfill their role to reach the most efficient route from A to B. Think of light that travels from A to B in the shortest route possible. 
the heptapode's view on the world is teleological or oriented towards an ultimate goal, which is not entirely unthinkable when they are able of perceiving several stances of time simultaneously, while in the contrary humans believe in a more causal way of existence. Amy Adams comes to this conclusion when she begins to understand how the heptapodes perceive the world. The words purpose and choice are important as in the teleological sense you would be likely to consider yourself as a part of one big thing, which explains Amy Adams' decision at the end concerning her daughter. If it is moral or not is irrelevant, while in a causal way you are convinced of your own free will and your influence on the world's development. On YouTube I may put some links to articles I found where people are better in explaining this concept than I am, but for now that should suffice. No worries, those are not like the typical postmodernist pseudo-intellectual essays full of over-interpretation YouTube is flooded with, but simply more in-depth analysis of the things I just swept over. There is an argument to consider that could be made about the decision towards the life of the daughter, but in simple words, this comes back to the human being finding strength and happiness in the face of death and finality. When he knows the end and is made aware of his own life's limits, the human tends to make the best out of it, which makes Amy Adams' decision as human as possible. I would simply say that becoming aware of your own mortality makes us more aware of the present and how we should find our personal happiness in the time we have been given by our luck of being born against the odds of nature. In short, our mortality is what gives our lives happiness and meaning. This is referred to in the film's line as Adams tells her daughter that she's getting divorced from Jeremy Renner because she made, in quotes, the wrong choice. She knew she would do this choice because it never was a choice. I can understand that you want to look at a movie on its own without anything other but when ignoring the other arguments I brought up or may wills or later, when omitting a fundamental part of the movie's writing and simply stating it isn't in the movie and calling it objectively poorly written, aren't you just using the word objectively as a shield? so you don't have to engage in conversations that could potentially exceed your current state of knowledge, and in this case wouldn't your assessment lose its credibility? If you simply ignore this part, then it is only natural that you think it makes no sense because you lack the necessary tools to understand the entire picture. If, for example, I happen to have had the necessary knowledge to understand this without secondary input, wouldn't it be within the movie and therefore still be relevant criticism? The other way to engage with this would be to ask if movies like this are made for everyone, for a niche group or maybe both, and to maybe motivate the ones who might had problems understanding it to be interested in learning about concepts they otherwise would have probably never cared about, which I wouldn't mark against the movie. But if you make the argument that every piece of art has to be for everyone, then you have to say this about the Lord of the Rings, Western, post-apocalyptic settings, etc. 
And then I would disagree because there are many people I've known who just can't get into fantasy and are not the audience for The Lord of the Rings. I can't expect anyone to put in the same amount of time to comprehend why I love Macbeth so much and I personally can't understand why people like zombie or mafia settings. I am not the audience for these works. Do I think art can be for everyone? Absolutely. Do I think every movie has or should be for everyone? No, because when you try to please everyone, you most likely end up pleasing no one. That would be my answer to why not everyone has to like the movie, but also why you can simply ignore a central part of writing within the movie when trying to criticize it. And even if it may sound like I want to change the EFAB crew's way of analyzing stuff, it's not the case. Everyone is free to criticize stuff as they want, so long as they can make it concise and comprehensible. I just wanted to explain why this is not always sufficient for a fair understanding of a movie, and so on. Just imagine the following scenario. You might have had a moment in your life when you thought something makes no sense, be it a movie or whatever. You thought the plot was not consistent, the characters were acting weird, and so on. A bit later you hear the, that the author of the movie wrote this movie about an idea he had while reading something else and wanted to see if this idea could be brought into a script or movie. When you hear of this you try to understand what this concept is and then with a more complex understanding you watch the movie again and suddenly all of the things you found to be flaws in the writing made total sense. That is how I felt when watching Denis Villeneuve's movie Enemy, which is definitely the most extreme example of this I've ever witnessed. If you understood this movie after your first watch, then props because I had no clue what the hell was going on. Is this the case with every movie? Certainly not. Even Shakespearean works like Macbeth or The Tempest don't need any form of further understanding. Of course they didn't. After all, those plays were written for the people and not for postmodernist pseudo-intellectual wannabe critics. And the same applies for modern writings. Most writers create their works for the people, for entertainment and to show them great stories and feelings. Terminator 2, Aliens, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, The Dark Knight, etc. All of those are great movies that simply tell great stories with great characters. But sometimes that's not the only thing. Now in this case the entire movie Enemy was written around a psychological phenomenon which is absolutely mandatory to get what the movie is about. Or let me phrase it like this. You can't understand this movie if you don't understand the internal logic of said phenomenon. I am a very cautious movie watcher but I had no clue what the hell was happening. And then after some short research, my brain lights started shining and my assumption that this doesn't make any sense got changed after my knowledge has increased. The same thing happened in Arrival and I'm very happy that the EFAB guys talked about this movie because otherwise I would have missed this aspect entirely. While most isms or ideas are passive in the form of the goal of what the script wants to achieve or the core, if a writer finds an interesting concept he wants to write his story around. In this case, the ism isn't just the tenor of the story but becomes a part of the vehicle. 
since it actively affects the structural elements of the story, the characters, plot and world building. That is rare, but in this case I would call this an active vimorism. It works not just as the goal or payoff of the story, but as a fourth leveling addition to the first three. And just like them, this one has an internal logical consistency as well. So what now? Is the fourth level, if you will, of arrival worth more than the first three or otherwise? It's exactly the same. It's an additional level or dimension some works of art just have. Arrival has it with the movie's commitment to the idea of determinism that is at least from my perspective for the most part consistent. Think of it more like this. Some stories are written around their characters like Tarantino's movies where the plot and the world are just tools or vehicles for the characters. Sometimes the plot and characters are written specifically for the world, like for Christopher Nolan who writes his characters around his plot or idea. And in this case, the characters, the plot and the world are built around the deterministic idea to make this as consistent and strong as possible. There are basically three forms of art analysis. The first, easiest and most common form is pure subjective analysis where you interpret the themes of the artwork and how you responded to them. That's what you do in art analysis classes. The second form is pure objective analysis which for example Mahler, Rex and so on are using a lot where you ignore the isms of the piece of art and only look at the way the plot characters and the world are built. I hope to be right at least to some degree about this. And the third, I think you guessed it, combines both of them and is the, also the most complex but for writers essential form of criticism in which you try to understand how to use the objective parts of your story to get the full potential of your story's core. I also want to point out that this is just the thesis I put up in response to my experience with the arrival debate in the EFAP episode 32 and it is neither true nor finished but I just think it is the most efficient way to analyze a movie like Arrival that is so heavy in its core. Well because every weird theory needs an epic name as a metaphor for it I would simply call this thing the the core theory. Because I have no epic music at hand that I could play right now, you just have to imagine that part for yourself. I simply want to bring up some points to the discussion at hand of the subjective good versus the objective evil. But what about people who lack the knowledge to talk about stuff like this? Well, that is the reason why research is important. Someone who studies philosophy, for example, would be more likely to see and respond to philosophic ideas represented in media if done poorly as well as done well. Just as someone like Wolf, who, who to me seems to have more knowledge about the Halo franchise, would be more competent to make a definitive statement about entries of the franchise than, for example, me. So, when Wolf proclaimed that he had eight pages of notes prepared, I was genuinely curious to see how he would approach this concept and if it's consistent and if I made a mistake. However, when in the end he didn't at all gave it a 1 out of 10 while factually not understanding it to its full extent and saying not much more than a constant repetition of the phrases this doesn't make any sense and this is retarded, I was indeed very disappointed and asked myself as someone who listened to the podcast for 30 episodes now 
what exactly happened and why I had the feeling that Wolf was wrong. I would simply ask the question if this sort of objective analysis is all it should be or if it could be more efficient if taking additional levels into account to expand the critique. Underlying ideas, if available, should be seen more like a fourth aspect in storytelling next to the world building and so on, due to their attachment and influence towards those three. Are you justified to criticize a work of art only on itself, without any additional knowledge? I would say so, but so is the opposite. Just take for example an expert in philosophy who just happens to be a specialist in determinism. I am of course not talking about me, because I am not more than a rookie who already struggles with the basics. If such a person watches the movie and comes to the conclusion that it does a fantastic job at showing a consistent and objectively good representation of this idea, we have two cases in which both are watching the movie without any secondary sources of input, but both are having completely different opinions about the quality of the movie. The expert knows that some decisions are not completely logical because the script sacrifices the free will of the characters for the purpose of the idea because it commits to this. Humans make stupid illogical decisions for emotional reasons and that Amy Adams' character decides for the life of her daughter, knowing that she will die of cancer, is, as I said, explainable as a decision a human would make and it is not an argument against the movie to say that it doesn't make sense. If you want to say that it is irresponsible from her not to inform Jeremy Renner's character of that and you think she is an asshole and that that is still just your opinion and not a valid argument. What is important to say at this point is that you can't even prove for sure that this is really the case since it's not happening because we aren't shown more. It is possible that she does inform him of this and he decides to support it but still leaves her as he couldn't bear it. This is not in the movie because it's not relevant for the plot, but you have to consider the possibility yet still. If the expert now says the movie is good because of that representation and the consequences that erupt from it, and the other says the movie is dumb because people are making stupid decisions, who do you think is more likely to be right? I do not want to say that one opinion is more valid and the other is worthless. I just want to point out that one person has the objectively better knowledge than the other and because of that is more fit to make a definitive statement about the movie's quality than the other. However, it is indeed no guarantee the casual in this example would still be able to persuade the expert through reasoning should he be right but not by saying this is retarded. If you now think that determinism is a terrible concept because humans have no free will, then I would completely agree because I too do not like the idea of humans having no free will to decide their life. While it doesn't make a movie bad that wants to commit in being a visual metaphor for this idea. I always tend to use the parable of the baker to explain this. You and a baker are sitting in a room and you discuss the aspect of baking with him. You are in conflict to the exact recipe for muffins and the baker tells you your way of baking is not wrong but inefficient because of reasons A, B and C. He has many years of experience, learned his, this professionally and does this for a living. 
while you are just baking the occasional cake or muffin for your sister's birthday. The baker gives you reasonable feedback to enhance your knowledge, but you blatantly reject his advice and say he doesn't understand anything. Wouldn't this make you incredibly unreasonable, condescending and outright ignorant? And there were a lot of people commenting on this. The only thing I want to say regarding to this not-so-great debate part 2 is that you should consider being more open towards input from people who might expand your knowledge on certain topics and to open up the possibility that you could not be right about everything. I have to say that from my perspective the omission of one fundamental part of a movie ends in a critique that is insufficient. And when taking this aspect into account, based on what the movie wants to be, a well-written sci-fi story about the idea of determinism, the movie succeeds, makes complete sense and is definitely not retarded. Concerning the important stuff that made it into the movie from the short story at least. The added story with the soldiers and the national conflict, not so much. That is where the movie sadly goes down. And I really ask myself if that was necessary, since I'm sure that could have been handled better. The criticism I would bring up towards the movie would be that this theme is too much on the nose for my taste. I prefer themes being more subtly woven into the narrative, although that could just be my opinion. And in addition, the Hollywood drama around the story's core can be distracting, but there seems to be no other way when trying to expand the content of a short story into a two-hour movie. Should I read the short story, I am almost sure my perspective on the movie would change, but right now, that's it. After this entire discussion and my second watch, and despite the unnecessary Hollywood drama, I have to say that this movie is good. And that word has a number in my rating system, and it's D8. This is what I think of this movie, and with this statement, I will conclude my assessment of Arrival. Final words. When I talk about the two aspects a piece of art consists of, I simply mean the core, which are the subjective ideas and tropes that made the artist want to create his artwork, on, and the surface which is pretty much the way of how the artist accomplishes to turn his core into a complete work. The first part is the subjective one and the latter the objective one. The question of why a work has been created would always be different for every artist. They all have their different experiences and motivations to write the story. But without the knowledge to turn those ideas inside your head into something physical, you will most likely fail. To give a better picture of what I mean, let's change the craftsmanship. If an uprising sculptor wants, who wants to shape his first sculpture has a precise idea or figure in his head of how the figure should look like, what do you think will help him more to shape it? Several other critics of sculptures telling him the meanings behind all of the best sculptures, their tropes and how it made them feel? I heavily doubt so. Different famous sculptures giving you tips on how to hold the hammer and what worked best for them? Well, maybe, but even if your first sculpture 
would be a little bit better than in scenario 1, you will most likely fail as well. No, you have to practice and criticize your work over and over again. You will start and you will fail. And every failure will be a lesson. You have learned to not make this mistake again. And the more you practice and the more you reflect your work, the more likely it is to be as you have imagined. And guess now, this is how sculptors learn to create figures. And nobody would even dare to say that the first two examples are superior to practice and experience. But if this is the standard for sculpturing, why are there so many people rejecting the idea that there is an internal logic to how scripts are written, when for literally every other craft it is the norm? No, you don't need to watch YouTube's, YouTube channels telling you of how Mulan resonated with the bisexuality. Maybe a video from about Brandon Sanderson's top 10 writing tips will give you some minor help. I won't deny that, but what works for one person doesn't mean it will eventually work for you as well. No, nothing beats experience, practice and self-reflection. Nothing will make your script better than redrafting the plot, the characters and the world over and over again until even you have nothing left to complain about. But there is no way you will ever create a good sense of reflection if you just look of how certain movies made you feel. If that is what's of interest for you, then become a literary scholar. No, you need to know how to form the feelings. You need to know what happens behind the curtain or how I defined it, the surface. You must understand how the vehicle works to give the tenor its effect and not just what the core of art is, but how it works. If you see a movie, that makes you cry, ask yourself why that movie makes you cry. What is the author doing to evoke this feeling? How are the characters' plots and the worlds set up to logically create this feeling? This is what matters. Ask yourself when setting up a scene with an emotional payoff. Does this make sense to feel that way in that situation? And if you think just pointing out plot holes would have no impact on the script's quality, don't you think being aware of logical errors will prevent you from doing those when you're writing your story? If you look into those old classics and you try to analyze them in the same way, you will realize of how airtight those scripts are and how much care went into books like Macbeth, The Lord of the Rings or The Count of Monte Cristo and that those books are classics for a reason. But you needn't go that far to see how well written movies can be. The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, Die Hard or Terminator 2 are all classics because they don't just have great stories, but those stories were also written with great care and passion by their authors to make them as possibly good as they could. And the fact that our current view on media is almost rewarding to writers who put no effort and have no standards for their work is infuriating and will directly lead to a massive decrease in quality. And is this really the world of media you want to spend your time and passion with? The reason why I'm so picky about this is that I really enjoy working on my scripts and worlds and I really want to make the best versions of them. I can, even if it means a lot of work. But if everything is subjective and quality does not exist, 
but all I need to do to make it good is putting some isms in there and let people guess some meaning into it. Why then should I invest any work or passion if it is pointless? This imagination is absolutely horrifying and I do not wish to live in such a world. I know this episode was very theoretical and almost expects a degree of knowledge about the things I covered, but I hope that you could still understand at least to some degree how I look at media critique. As I hinted in the beginning, this episode contains no main topic yet because I completely overdid it again and therefore have to move the first main topic into next month's episode, where I will talk about Far Cry 5 and the Ubisoft sickness and maybe some other stuff. This episode might not be that important, but I thought it right to talk about criticism and writing in general before touching the first topic. And maybe if you're still listening, it was even slightly entertaining. Anyways, guys, thank you kindly for listening and spending the time to listen to me talking. After all, your time is the most valuable resource you possess, and until presumably next month. I apologize for some rather weird pronunciations, but as you might have heard, I'm not a native English speaker, and I hope this will get better during the next few episodes. Don't forget to follow me on Spotify and listen to my awesome playlists filled with glorious symphonic music. It's free. Also, follow my cat on Instagram at DannyTheCat, where I'm posting frequently once or twice a year. It's also free. And consider to take a look at my Patreon. It's free. <laughs>